This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. Thank you for staying with us here at Power 98.7. It is the Thursday edition of Power Talk. And um, today we're going to talk about something that affects us all differently, but it is our collective problem. It's an uncomfortable reality we have to deal with. But we know it all too well in South Africa because um, we had to address it for 50 years as an institutionalized form of governance and then for 29 years as a systemic problem. And we think, okay, cumulatively, that's about 80 years of managing this problem, but it seems as though it's a problem the world has had to manage for more than 400 years and its overhang is still with us. When we started the program, I said today we are discussing race, yes, race and racism, power, identity, and politics. The hotbed issues in the United States of America, as you see a rising tide of intolerance against minorities and immigrant communities in the country, and I actually described it as a race to the bottom for America losing its moral high ground. But it's not just an American problem. The British had a very uncomfortable moment with the election of a man of Indian descent as prime minister. And in fact, he only got the the position on the third attempt because he'd been bypassed twice before by his own party, the Conservatives. And yes, in South Africa, it's the perennial thing, you know, to the point where people say, do South Africans talk about anything else other than racism and transformation? And then people say, You can't begin to talk about anything else when the fundamental core of your being is either being nullified, discounted or ignored. It is the starting point to all things. 
And she's nodding as I say this. Her name is Desiree Comier-Smith. She's the Special Representative for Racial Equality and Justice at the Bureau for Democracy or the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor. And her work is global. And she's in South Africa right now to come and do a, an observation. And then she'll tell us more. So Desiree Comier-Smith, welcome. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. It's a real honor to be here. And uh, I've been told it's not your first rodeo. You've lived in South Africa. (laughs) I have. I've had the privilege of living in South Africa for two years. And then following that, I traveled to South Africa probably once, almost once a month or once every other month for about five subsequent years. So I very much consider South Africa my second home. It's so wonderful to be back. Uh, My only regret is that it's such a short trip. So I'm actually not able to see uh, some of my friends who are still here. Oh, my goodness. I hope they can hear you over the radio. (laughs) So what is the work of the Special Representative for Racial Equity and Justice in the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor? Yeah, so it's a brand new position. Um, I am the State Department, the U.S. State Department's first ever Special Representative for Racial Equity and Justice. I was appointed last year, last June, uh, by the Secretary of State. And my mandate is twofold. First is to ensure that U.S. foreign policy programs and engagements promote and protect the human rights of members of marginalized racial, ethnic, and indigenous communities, including people of African descent, and to build global partnerships to combat structural racism, discrimination, and xenophobia globally. Now, to be clear, my mandate was not created because we think that we have somehow solved these problems in the United States. It's exact opposite. It was created because we recognize that we are not the only country struggling with these issues. I find it interesting that the U.S. State Department is basically South Africa's equivalent of the Department of International Relations and Cooperation. So that's where you nurture uh, uh, diplomats and create relations with the rest of the world. And a position has been created to address racial equity and justice. And that effectively says to me it's being seen as a diplomatic issue. It's being seen as an international relations issue. 100%. We very much see it as a foreign policy imperative, as actually something critical to our own national security, as well as the national security of other countries. And we are not the only ones who think that. Uh, The UN, the head of the UN, the Secretary General, has called racism a global threat. The UN, the head of the UN uh, Human Rights Commission, has said that racism is a challenge that no country is immune from. I think his direct quote is that, quote, no country in the world is free of racism. So we very much see this as a global challenge that will require coordinated and sustained global solutions. And why? Because racism undermines uh, societies. It undermines economic development. It undermines democracy. um, And it undermines stability. Whereas when we see countries that address deeply rooted racial inequities, Mm. they tend to be more peaceful, more prosperous and more Mm. stable. And that's good for everyone. And that's true for business as well. McKinsey had a report that showed that companies that had a more diverse workforce Mm -hmm. and leadership were actually 25% more profitable. And by diversity, they meant gender, they meant race, they even meant sexuality. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, if we apply that to societies overall, just think about how much more we would benefit from the creativity, from the brilliance, from the knowledge of members of marginalized racial, ethnic, and indigenous communities who for centuries, as you noted, have been marginalized because of the legacies of colonization and the uh, transatlantic slave trade. Mm. Okay, so this is becoming a global issue. As you're saying, the UN Secretary General has even appointed a special advisor on race who happens to be a South African. Yes. Advocate Mojangu Gumbi. Yes. And there are other steps being taken in other countries of the emerging uh, markets. Brazil, you were telling me earlier on. So why now? What's happened now that the world is kind of at the precipice of saying... We've got to tackle this thing once and for all. We've got to confront it. We've got to talk about it as yeah. uncomfortable a truth as it is. Yeah, that's a good question. I think there have been a couple things that have happened. Um, and none of these conversations are new, right? I don't want to discount the incredible and important work that our ancestors have done, that people before us have done, that we are building upon. Mm-hmm. So to be clear, I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not the first to You're have this idea. Exactly. I'm not reinventing the wheel. I am building upon the legacy of people like Advocate Majanku Gumbi, mm-hmm. who has been astonished fighter for anti-racism and racial equality for decades, right? Um, So why now? I think um, it would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that the murder of George Floyd sparked, I think, a renewed uh, commitment and attention to uh, the realities of systemic racism, not only in the United States, but around the world. Mm -hmm. What we saw in that moment following that horrific murder were peaceful protests the largest we've ever seen in the United States Mm -hmm. that were multiracial, multi-generational. But we also saw peaceful protests around the world. And I posit that those peaceful protests were more than just solidarity with black Americans, right? I think people were really moved to come out to the streets because something resonated with them, with their own lived experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, So we saw massive protests, peaceful protests, across the African continent, Mm -hmm. across Europe, across Mm -hmm. Latin America, across Asia, across uh, the Middle East. Mm -hmm. It's because no country in the world is immune from racism. Um, I'm going to want us to interrogate what's happening in America, but just not quite yet. You use the word systemic racism. I use it a lot. But what do we mean by it? Because people are saying... You know, uh, we can all love each other yeah. and move on. Yeah. The, 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 there is a, seg- a segment of, of, of society that, that feels, why can't we just let it go? Yeah, yeah. And then people say, you can't let it go because when I walk into the store to buy a pair of shoes, right. the shopkeeper looks at me in a strange way just because I'm black. Right. Let it go. Right. I, I know I didn't get the promotion. Because I'm black. How right. do you know that? Let it go. So right. so there is a segment of the population that doesn't understand the trauma. And then there's a segment of the population that keeps reliving the trauma generationally. Right. Why? Right. So, you know, I think there's different ways to describe racism. Um, what you were describing about walking into a store and not being serviced or being charged more, that's more like personal racism, right? That's that's on the level of people just having their own biases. And it's terrible. But when I talk about racism, I'm talking about systemic and structural racism, more along the lines of what you, the other example you mentioned of, I didn't get that promotion because I'm black. I didn't get that job because I'm black. I didn't get that house because I'm black. Those are the structures that have perpetuated the inequities that we see 
in my country, in this country, in countries around the world for centuries. And until we address those inequities, we are not going to have the kind of sustainable economic growth that our leaders are calling for, right, that they seem to want. So I guess another reason why maybe now we're actually having these hard conversations is because maybe people are realizing that we've tried all these other things, we've tried to address all these other issues, but we've danced around the elephant in the room, Mm -hmm. which is structural racism. These policies, these laws, these structures that have prevented people of African descent, indigenous peoples, other members of ethnic groups and racialized groups from actually living up to their full potential. Let's break it down. What do we mean? What are those structures? Because there isn't, um, not that I know of, but I don't think countries would be so bold as to have an overt policy right. that says we don't hire black right. people, we don't hire women. There's no law that right. says so. But you feel the prejudice. Yeah. How do you feel that prejudice yeah. in the system? Yeah, yeah, that's a really great question and a tough one, right? Um, in fact, most countries in the world have laws on the books that forbid discrimination. And most of them have uh, racial discrimination and ethnic discrimination explicitly um, in those laws, saying it is forbidden for anyone to discriminate you based on your race or ethnicity or gender and other things. However, we still see these structural issues. And let me give you maybe an example to help try and clarify it. Um, So on the books uh, in the United States following the civil rights movement, uh, it was forbidden to discriminate against anyone based on race, right? Yet we saw that uh, black people were prevented from buying homes in certain areas because they were black. So even though de, de, de jour, legal segregation was outlawed, de facto segregation still persisted and still um, perpetuated those structural barriers to black people and other people of color obtaining equal opportunities. So, so, so if I understand what you're saying, you know, there are attitudes which help to perpetuate the structural racism, but there'll be real tangible systemic things like overpricing. Yeah, yeah. Because you know that historically black people haven't had access to jobs right. that would then allow them to buy properties in neighborhood X. Right. So the price alone of neighborhood right. X right. makes it almost impossible even for the most accomplished of black professionals to be able to buy That's right. this property or yeah. land ownership. Yeah. The pricing of land. Yeah. The title deeds process. Yeah. It's those kinds of structures exactly. that start to prohibit people from participating meaningfully because of the color of their skin. Exactly. And so it's when those prejudices, those racial biases and those racial prejudices are held by those who are in power, Mm -hmm. that's when you continue to see these inequities persist. Even if on the books, everything is good, right? Mm. You know, I was uh, social media now. Um, There was a, a young doctor just reflecting on her experience of being a young doctor, the first in her generation, the first in her lineage, a great moment. And she says, such a pivotal, life-changing event in my life, graduating from medical school. She says, then I rise up the ranks and quite soon I become head of department in this hospital Mm -hmm. and enter this couple to come and see the neurologist. And when 
I walked in as a black neurologist, not only did they have a physical response to it, literally jumped off their seats. They then asked to speak to the manager, literally asked to speak to the superintendent of the yeah. hospital yeah. because they were not ready to be treated by a black neurologist. Mm. And they wanted me to please present my credentials. Wow. I'm the head of neurology in a hospital, but now I have to prove that I'm the head of neurology. And that is structural racism. Yeah, Because it's at that moment, the white couple couldn't hold back this fear of a black doctor walking to the room. They expected the black doctor to be incompetent, uh, whatever, mm -hmm, unqualified, etc., mm -hmm. etc. Et and so they had to go through the whole spiel mm -hmm. to prove that this neurologist is really who they say they are mm -hmm. before they can even do an x-ray. Mm -hmm. And think about the cost of that, right? The extra time that it took that black doctor to have to prove herself, the mental load of having to prove yourself when you know you are the most qualified person in the room, right? Mm -hmm. um, all of that takes a toll on black people, on indigenous people, on other people who are questioned simply because of their race or ethnicity. And that toll actually costs us. Think about the opportunity costs. What other things she could have been doing if she didn't have to go through all minutes. of the time. Exactly. She could have seen two other patients in that time, right? So my other argument is that racism costs everyone. There's a really fantastic book by Heather McGee, a black American author called The, the Sum of Us, that really breaks down the economic argument mm -hmm. and how racism costs societies. Um, she gives ver a, a book full of examples, but one that really stands out to me is how um, in the 50s and 60s, um, in the era of segregation in the United States, mm -hmm. um, when black children were allowed to swim in pools that were previously um, only whites right. only, um, instead of allowing their children to enjoy the pool with black children, the white parents would often drain the pool. <gasps> How extreme, how extreme, right? Um, think about the lack of humanity in that kind of response yeah. and what you have done not only to the black children in the families who just wanted to be able to enjoy the swimming pool, yeah. but what you have done to your own children. Now your children don't have a place to go swim, yeah. right? So that's just one example. What but she gives a water bill? Uh, exactly. <laughs> and just a waste, a waste of water. It's, she gives a litany of examples like that that show the economic price of racism and racial inequities and discrimination. Okay, so let's uh, bring it back home. Sure. Your home and then my home. Okay. So you mentioned George Floyd um, and the murder of George Floyd, because it was, right? Yes. Um, being a turning point for how Americans are talking about race. Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. um, has become a phenomenon uh, in itself, a clarion call. But despite all of these things, people are still getting shot. Yes. In drive waves mm -hmm. for being black. Mm -hmm. um, and I can give you names. Brianna Taylor. Mm -hmm. She was just shot by police who just broke down the door looking for her boyfriend in her house. She mm -hmm. was sleeping. She's a nurse. George Floyd. Mm -hmm. uh, Ralph Yao, mm -hmm. the young teenager who plays in a symphony orchestra, asked to pick up his siblings, mm -hmm. drove through the wrong driveway, was shot in the head. Um, this was less violent, but the ejection was really um, quite um, mind-boggling. The Tennessee... Um, 
lawmakers, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, mm-hmm. for raising mm-hmm. racial issues in the um, local Tennessee uh, municipal legislature, and they were kicked out and then they had to be reinstated. And all of this is fueled or, or it's compounded by the fact that the person on the other end carries a gun. Mm-hmm. So it's not just racism, an attitude of racism. Mm-hmm. It's a violent expression of it, mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. it involves the police and their brutality or citizens who then invoke their Second Amendment rights to carry guns, etc. Mm-hmm. And people are watching America at the moment and saying, what is happening here and why is it happening? I ask myself the same thing. We're not a perfect country. And we are going through what President Biden has categorized as an inflection point. We are at an inflection point uh, for the soul of our nation. I would argue, though, because I am a diplomat, um, that we are not the only country going through at that inflection point. We see these issues around the world, and it's a combination of racism, but also uh, democracy, right, where democracy is in peril. We are struggling to make our democracy real in the UI and, and to maintain our democracy in the United States. Um, we saw very similar challenges in Brazil, right? Um, and so it is a, a, a scary time um, in my country, but it is a scary time around the world. And I, I can't remember who to attribute this to, and I, I hate that I don't know, mm-hmm. but someone once said, I believe it was one of our revered civil rights leaders, um, that before a moment of progress, you always see a severe backlash. Mm-hmm. But that's how you know you're almost at the point of breakthrough. I, I want to hone in on the word backlash because staying with the United States, that's what it feels like mm-hmm, is happening. Mm-hmm. So demographically, they say the United States, I just pulled up some stats yesterday, that the makeup of America is what we'd call traditional whites. So Caucasian Americans are 57.8% of the population. Um, and then you start to break down the population as people who look white, but they're actually Latino, as they're called Hispanics, from Mexico, Central America, Cuba, Latin America, they then make up about 18.7% of the population. Then African Americans come in third at about 12% of the population. And then we start to look at other minorities like Asian Americans, descendants of people who've come in from Korea, India, and China. And this 57% of what we'd call Caucasian whites Mm -hmm. are starting to look at Um, a growing population of Mm -hmm. Africans, Hispanics, Mm -hmm. um, Asians, and they're panicking Mm -hmm. because when they look, when they imagine the future of America 100 years from now, America will no longer look white. It will look mixed. Mm -hmm. And it's that mix that they can't abide the thought of it's it, they, they mm. can't they can't really imagine a country that looks like brazil mm. being called the united states of america and as a result the politics of the conservative white population is becoming even more conservative even more intolerant even more radical a backlash mm. is that a fair assessment of what's happening you know i can't speak for them because i'm not uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't fall into that category. Um, but you know, in terms of the fear of uh, America being 
more diluted. I think that's the word. Uh, I, I think that's a terrible way that's to put it, right? Um, but the 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 fear of America becoming more um, diverse, if you will, I think yeah. is an unfounded one. We have always been a diverse country. We have always been a uh, beautiful, rich uh, combination and collection of peoples from around the world, right? Mm. And so when you talk about people looking at America in 100 years and seeing a much more uh, colorful America, yeah, well, that's the America country. I always yeah. knew, right? Yeah. And that is just as America as someone else's assessment of uh, a, a a fully white or only white yeah. neighborhood. And so that's what makes America so, I think, so beautiful. Um, but that's also what makes us um, have these kinds of really tough conversations because we are not a monolith. Yeah. We are an incredibly diverse country okay. with people from with various backgrounds and views. Yeah. And that's okay, right? Yeah. Um, but sometimes it does have lead to very ugly, very uncomfortable, very lively debates. Yeah. But that's what democracies are about. And that's what you can expect when you have a multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-religious democracy. Sure. Okay, we're in conversation with Desiree Comia-Smith, Special Representative for Racial Equality and Justice in the Bureau, uh, or the Justice Bureau, rather, of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor for the State Department of the United States. We continue with her just after the headlines. Power Talk with Lira Dombele. The time is 11.34 and we're having a very uncomfortable conversation, <laughs> but one that must be had because, as we've heard, the world is at a tipping point. The United States of America, which considers itself as a leader in the world, is at an inflection point. And we can't even begin to talk about uh, democracy without diversity and mm-hmm. inclusion. And that's on race, on gender mm-hmm. and on um sexual orientation and the State Department, which is effectively um, America's Department of Foreign Affairs, Mm -hmm. has created a position which is a special representative for racial equity and justice sitting in the State Department because this diplomat, her work is to build and foster relations across the world because America now recognizes that without racial equality, countries face existential threats to their national security. If all people in a country can't participate meaningfully, exactly, you're just sitting on a powder keg exactly. of problems. Desiree Comier-Smith, she joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us on Power Talk. There is a question here that says, Lerato, in your first breakdown of the uh, demographics of the American population, I didn't hear you mention indigenous uh, mm. Americans, mm. they are a minority. Mm-hmm. Are they extinct? A lot has been done to marginalize them. And that breakdown was 57.8% who are considered white Americans, 18.7% who are Hispanics, and then African Americans are 12%, and then minorities or descendants from Asia, India, China, Korea make up another proportion of the population. Ah, that question broke my heart, um, especially the part that asked if they are extinct. No, indigenous people are not extinct. They are not relics of the past. Uh, Native Americans and indigenous peoples from around the world are contributing to our societies. They are thriving. They are, um, in many regards, um, carrying on their traditions and their knowledge that can be extremely valuable if we apply them to some of the most pressing problems of today, Mm -hmm. especially climate change. 
right? They have the traditional knowledge on how to be yeah. uh, more resilient, on how to protect Mother Earth. I saw mm. that firsthand when I was in Brazil mm. in the indigenous peoples who are working, who are dedicating mm. their lives and oftentimes sacrificing their lives to protect the Amazon, mm. which is good for all of us. Mm. I'm not sure of the exact percentage of Native Americans. I think it's around maybe 2%, mm. um, but they are a living, thriving community in the United mm. States, and they are the backbone and the bedrock of our country, mm. right? Our country was founded on two original sins, mm. colonization and the displacement of Native Americans and the enslavement of Africans, mm. right? Um, and uh, President Biden has acknowledged that. I think it's also important for me to acknowledge that we um, now have the first Native American cabinet member and mm. Secretary Deb Holland, mm. uh, who is Secretary of the Department of the Interior uh, that manages our engagements uh, and our nation-to-nation -nation relationship yeah. with tribal nations. And when we spoke earlier on and I said, you know, it seems as, as if there's a rising tide of nationalism, fascism with Caucasian Americans, conservative, feeling like they need to protect themselves in America, hence the guns, hence the mm. shooting of people on the streets. And something was said in the research, which is there are white Americans mm -hmm. and then there are white Hispanics who are seen as a different category. So that diversity you were talking about, where you said it's so difficult to just yeah. look at an American and pinpoint what their heritage is. Yeah. And this is why these kinds of things can be dangerous because you can't look at someone and think you know what, who they are or what their heritage is. That's right. That's right. And even within those demographics, none of them should be or uh, should be seen as a monolith, right? Mm -hmm. Within that 56% of white Americans, uh, there are plenty of white Americans who participated in our civil rights movement, who participated in the movement to abolish slavery, right? So I don't want to uh, paint any group with a broad brush mm -hmm. um, because uh, at the end of the day, we're talking about human beings. Mm -hmm. And human beings have the capacity to do um, good things, right? But we also see that human beings can also perpetuate some really negative things. So Desiree, you lived in South Africa for a time. You come here once a month. We love that you, this is your <laughs> second home. But coming from where you come from and then observing South Africa in its evolution, mm -hmm. what were your thoughts? You know, when I first moved here over a decade ago, um, as a foreign service officer, so I worked at the U.S. Embassy in Pretoria, it felt very familiar, mm. right? There were um, similarities here uh, that made me feel at home, um, particularly since I grew up in Inglewood in South Central California, yeah. South Central L.A. Um, and so, you know, being in parts of Joburg, being in parts of Cape Town, very much felt familiar. However... There are important differences here, right? And so I, I want to be clear that, in, especially in my new role now, I do not apply an American lens to racism in any other country. Mm -hmm. um, this is why it's so important for me to lead by listening, start by listening. So I'm here to listen, yeah. to engage with civil society, to engage with our government right. partners, to engage with the private sector, to identify potential opportunities for us to potentially partner to address our shared challenges yeah. of persistent racial inequities. You know, as you just said, I do not look at racial issues from an American lens. It triggered something in me, mm. which is when I moved to England to go and study, it was something that I was advised deal with England as England. Don't deal with it as a South African mm. in England mm -hmm. because things are going to get lost in translation. Mm -hmm. You've got a very distinct experience being a black woman in South Africa. Yeah. You're still going to be a black woman in England, yeah. but not a black 
South African. Right. And after a while, I worked out what that meant. There's still prejudice and racism in England. Yeah. But it doesn't quite manifest the way it does in South Africa. And if you take the South African lens to the UK, you're really going to struggle because it's not quite. That's right how it plays itself out. So what are the different ways in which people experience being a minority in other parts of the world? You know, it really depends on where you are in the world. Um, and, you know, one uh, one thing that I like to always point out, I actually don't use the term minorities. Mm-hmm. Um, I use the term marginalized racial, ethnic, or indigenous uh, okay community why because minority for several reasons one minorities to call people of color minorities is actually inaccurate okay. um, we are the global majority but also in many countries like South Africa like uh, like Brazil mm-hmm. people of African descent are actually the majority, majority yet they countries. are the con- they continue to be the most marginalized the most vulnerable uh, another reason why I don't use the term minorities is because it's inaccurate for me to say that um, my mandate is to um, you know focus on all minorities because not all minorities are marginalized there are some ethnic and racial minorities living in countries that are doing quite well right and then finally the last reason and this is more like a soft touchy feeling one is that um the term minorities can be pejorative it can make these communities feel smaller and more isolated than they are and especially in this line of work language matters so it really does matter how i uh, talk about these communities and i always follow their lead so if they tell me they like to be called indigenous i call them indigenous Mm -hmm. if they tell me they like to be called afro whatever i call them afro whatever i want to push back on that a little bit going yeah. back to the European e- example because whatever we may think um, when you are of a different racial and even religious mm-hmm. grouping you are technically a minority you only make up three or four percent of the mm-hmm. population mm-hmm. and I think that's what emboldens yeah the locals to treat you yeah like a different person because yeah. you make up such a small social grouping they don't really need you. So they yeah. don't really have to be nice about you. Yeah, that is very true. And that's also why I don't like the term, right? Because, um, and you know, what I was really heartened to see um, in the U.S. following the murder of George Floyd and that summer of 2020 and the massive protests was I think there was a growing sense of the need for solidarity amongst black Americans, amongst Latinx Americans, amongst Asian Americans and all Amer- and Native Americans and all Americans of color. Because yes, individually, we might be small percentages, but together we're quite powerful. Mm-hmm. And while there are important differences um, facing many of our communities, mm-hmm. right, and distinct challenges, there are some commonalities. And so mm-hmm. if we could focus on those commonalities and, and, and come together in solidarity, we'd be much more powerful than trying to fight mm-hmm. in silos. Okay, so let's talk about best practice. Yes. Countries that have made very deliberate interventions yeah. for marginalized communities. Yeah for inclusion and seem to be doing well because yes to the caveat this hasn't been solved for worldwide but but who's trying and it's delivering something yeah you know i think we should give credit where credit is due right um no country has solved the problem of racism but there are i think as you noted good examples and sort of best practices um i I keep referencing brazil because i was just there last week and i must um I, i think i'll start there uh the their new president president lula um has established the first ever Ministry for Indigenous Peoples. I think that's a fantastic practice, right? It's an acknowledgement of the unique challenges and circumstances facing Indigenous peoples in Brazil. And 
uh, critically, that minister is an indigenous woman herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also has named a new minister for racial equality, um, which is also incredibly important to get at these structural inequities that continue mm-hmm. to persist and continue to plague the country where 56% of Brazilians identify as black. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, So I think, though, that's a really uh, those are great practices. Um, I think, you know, again, my country is not perfect. Mm. We still have a long way to go. But I think it should be acknowledged some of the strides we've made under President Biden, including on uh, on his first day in office. He signed a historic executive order on advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities. We had never seen anything like this. An American president acknowledging that for centuries uh, the federal government has actually actually played a role in perpetuating inequities and mandating a whole of government government approach to identify those inequities mm-hmm. and create policies that will reduce and reverse those inequities. Mm-hmm. That's historic. And just a few months ago, he issued a second executive order doubling down on that. Mm-hmm. Because as he said, this cannot be a one-off project. Mm-hmm. It has to be a generational commitment mm-hmm. to advancing equity for marginalized, racialized communities. And, and what is advancing equity? What do we mean by that tangible? Yeah, that's a really good question. So people often ask me why my title is racial equity and not racial yeah. equality. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the simplest way for me to break it down, I realized, is uh, to talk through a picture that was very popular in the summer of 2020. Yeah. So equity refers to the specific and proportionate needs of marginalized communities to reach equality. Mm-hmm. Picture three people standing behind a fence. Mm. One person is tall enough on his own to see over the fence. Mm -hmm. The second person is not quite tall enough to see over the fence, but maybe if he stands on his tippy toes, he can see over the fence. Mm -hmm. The third person is probably about my height. I'm quite short, right? Yeah, yeah, we're short. (laughs) So cannot see anything but the fence. Even if she or he tried to jump over, stood on on their tippy toes, cannot see over. That's the reality, right? Equality would be giving each of them a stool to see of the same size to see over the fence. So that means that the taller person now will see even more. The middle person now maybe can see over the fence, but the short person still can't see over the fence because the stool is not tall enough. Equity would be giving each of them a stool that they need to see over the fence at the same height. So that means the tallest person, because he or she does not need it, will not get a stool. But nothing is being taken away from them. The middle person will get a small enough stool to allow them to see over the fence at the same level as the tall person. And the small person will get the tallest stool to allow them to see over the fence. That is equity. Justice would be the removal of the fence. Very, very powerful. So Desiree, as we wrap up this conversation... um, Where to from here? Because we can talk about these things Mm -hmm. and we can attach politically correct language to it. It doesn't change people's hearts and minds. Yeah. And the fact that we continue to grapple with racism 400 years later with the generations of the generations Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. continue to live by stereotypes and boldly express their prejudices is because you can legislate, but you can't change what's in the soul. That's right. And that's the hardest part. I don't have the answer on how to change people's hearts and souls, right? 
all I can do is try to get at those policies, is try to create um, policies and structures that allow everyone the same opportunity to live up to their fullest potential. And I hope, my hope is that by doing that and allowing people uh, a truly level playing field, people who had those racist sort of stereotypes will begin to see the benefits to their own lives when everyone is allowed mm. to live free and equal in dignity yeah. and rights. Yeah. Desiree Comier-Smith, Special Representative in the United States State Department uh, for Racial Equity and justice. She said so many beautiful things today. The first is that actually you can put a numeric value to racism. It costs economies a lot Mm -hmm. to keep a significant proportion of the population outside of the mainstream. That's right. Okay, so there's a cost to it. Secondly, if people are born and bred in your country, but you don't give them equal rights, it's just a time bomb Mm -hmm. for social unrest. Mm -hmm. So it's a national security threat. And then lastly, In a world where we're looking for more participation, equity matters. Because we all can't have a stool when you've already had distinct advantages. And marginalized communities, not minorities, need those stools. That's right. One day we're going to talk about this in the context of foreign policy, but not today. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.